Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. How are you today? I'm doing great, Russ. How are you? I'm fine. You still have two chairs. You know, I want to know how you use... No, you have three chairs. Mm -hmm. You put one foot in each chair and then... (laughs) No, no. Is that the... What I do is I put a kid in one chair and a wife in the other one. So there... Sometimes we are all in here at the same time. But I don't know. I mean, I'm just not... I mean, I always see the three chairs. They're always empty. So I'm I'm always kind of like... Trying to figure out how you how you use all three chairs at the same time, man. It's kind of kind of strange. Well, tell you what, you call my wife, you convince her to come on the show, and then the other chair can be full. Hey, I can do that actually. What could she talk about? <laughs> oh, there's a lot of things. She's pretty smart. Well, there you go. So yeah, we should do that. We should get we should get your wife and my wife on the show at the same time. That would be funny. That that would be that would be humorous. And today we are joined by Joel King, who is out in the Raleigh area still. Joel hasn't figured out that Raleigh is getting too busy and crazy, and it's time to move on, but that's okay. <laughs> it is. It is. So how are you guys doing today? I'm good. I'm fine. Tom, you okay? I'm, I'm still air-conditioned, so I'm, I haven't been Well, baked. there you go. Yeah, that's yeah. important. And Joel and I worked back, way back in Cisco days, and I have no idea what Joel is doing today. I, I've lost track of Joel. Joel is... Joel is still living in Raleigh, and I've lost track of what he's actually doing. So um, today we're going to talk about Net um, Net DevOps, and that should be interesting because DevOps we normally think of as applying to the server and the application side, the development side. We don't much think about it applying to our infrastructure. Um, so that would be DevOps, and we're going to talk about Net DevOps. So Joel, why don't you start with like, I don't know, what are you doing nowadays? And then, and then, then we'll move into talking about um, net DevOps. Yeah, sure. So I just, uh, you started a new job. I just started a new job in the past uh, few weeks as well. I'm working for net craftsman now oh, yeah. after taking the summer off, I'm a distinguished engineer at net craftsman and, uh, I'm responsible for the automation practice, uh, at net craftsman. So there's a focus on automation and, um, small company but growing very rapidly. And that's been quite a, quite a change for me, but I'm enjoying it. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. NetCraftsman is one of the very oldest Cisco partners, actually one of the very, very, very first ones. And Terry Slattery, who was one of the very first CCIEs used to work there. And, um, and I know Terry pretty well. He was on history of networking a couple of times and this, that, and the other. So that's good. And for those of you who don't know, I just switched over to Akamai. I'm now a senior architect at Akamai um, Technologies. So I am back on the network core and back in security and DDoS and stuff. And so, uh, you know, watch out. Watch out all you routes. <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Joel, let's talk about NetDevOps. And so... You have some notes here about the first way, second way. Why don't we dive into that and talk about DevOps and its and its history a little bit, and then get into the ways that you're thinking about um, Net DevOps. Yeah, I, I recently contributed to a article um, 
about net devops and there's gotten to be quite a bit written about that now but you know we still don't in the networking world we still don't do it very well well one of the one of the books that i found very useful this, there's really two core books there's the phoenix project and then the devops handbook and and both are good reads a lot of people talk about the phoenix project it's an easy read it's much higher level but i think uh the devops handbook if you're a network engineer it's something that you really ought to take a look at it has a lot of examples about the concepts in um in devops but um the first part of the book it talks about the three ways and they emphasize that but just going back a little bit many of these concepts these concepts aren't new um we think it's it's popular now but the whole concept about devops really came from the a lot of the principles really came from the toyota production system which came about late 40s early 50s so a lot of the things that we think are, that are very uh very common or very revolutionary in today's world aren't necessarily new they're just being applied to different use cases so if you look at the Toyota production system and you can there's documentation online you can look at that but we've got many principles there that uh, we we always we don't always do a good job in the networking world so and on cords one of the principles how do you notify people about a quality process or a failure in a process right um that, you know people don't like to hear about problems but sometimes you have to identify them to be able to address it. So didn't this come out of Pete Drucker's work just after World War II rebuilding the Japanese economy? Is that kind of the history yeah. of the Toyota production stuff? That Exactly. That came into TQM, which then came into continuous improvement, which kind of came into agile development and spurned off or, or spun off into this idea of DevOps as a counterpart. So, so originally... Originally, if you think about, or when I think about um, agile, I think of coders. I don't think of infrastructure, right? And, and it's hard to understand sometimes how agile applies to coding or anything beyond coding. Although I used to work in a marketing department that used agile for sprints to do marketing releases, which was kind of an awkward usage of it. But, you know, they were just using the process as a, as a way to do a process. Um, so this seems to be the history behind it, from what I remember. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, it, and if you think about it, you know, operating data center network or any network, it, it, to some extent, it is a production system, just like your manufacturing a Toyota. I mean, there's cer certain things that have to happen at different times, that whole workflow. Um, you know, many people that we talk to, it takes weeks, if not months at times to to get a new service deployed for an existing network. You might have to create VLANs, you might have to do firewall rules, you might have to create uh, virtual IP addresses on your load balancers. You know, all those steps, if you think about it, it is a process, right? So anything that, anything that was applicable to improving the process of a manufacturing system should be applicable to improving the process of a net network operations. Now there's 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 plenty of um, of operations that are quite successful that don't 
uh, treat the network as code that don't that don't embrace net DevOps. What I'm wondering is, I mean, so when Toyota did its thing, it proved that if you want to be competitive, you you pretty much need to operate in this fashion or think along these lines. But we don't see the same thing in the networking industry. We see some people who are very successful with net DevOps, but then there are also a whole bunch of people who are still 10, 20 years behind in how they deploy their infrastructures. I wonder if you have thoughts for you know what the the reason for that division is. Well, I, I always tell people it's not a technology problem. It's a people and process problem, right? So if you look at the Toyota production system, one of the tenets there is a learning culture. Uh, being able to take your team and learn new skills, discover how they can do things better, and the whole concept around improvement, daily habitual improvement and getting better every day. Just think about how many organizations where people you know, either aren't encouraged or they're not motivated to look at how to do things differently. And, and that, they're people and process issues, not technology. Yeah, and I think that Juniper does a yearly survey of automation um, practices, like they do this on a regular basis. And I think they often show, you know, and this is kind of something that's kind of confusing. They often show that, that there's this divide in the market, that there are a lot of companies who are automating their networks and there are a lot who are just not. And I guess part of my question is, since you can succeed without automation, right, Tom, there are companies that still succeed without automation, then what should drive people to automate other than just reducing the number of people who work there? And that's probably a basic question. But what what, what would you answer to that? Like, if somebody's listening to this and they say, well, you know, it's right, Tom's right, there's people who haven't automated, why should I care? Well, if you go back to the tenets of the Toyota production system, they say that if you're not improving you're falling behind due to atrophy right so if if you if you think about that if you just we just uh actually just got a new toyota last week and if you think about it look at that car today and look at what that car was like 20 years ago they're dramatically different i mean they're they're really um compute power the onboard systems, I mean, they're dramatically different and they're much easier to drive. They have a lot more features. They probably have too many features in some cases. But if you continue to do things the same way, you can't sell a 20-year-old technology today because of the competition, right? So competition, the length of time that a company is in the, say, Fortune 500 today is much shorter and a much less of a lifespan than the average lifespan of a company in the in Fortune 500 today than what it was 20 years ago. Technologies. Just think about how things changed in during the pandemic. What companies' stock price went through the roof beginning of the pandemic? Ones like Peloton and Zoom, and today they've fallen back. So that opportunity of being able to be successful, it's very hard to maintain that over a long period of time. So you really have to be reinventing yourself. And it's hard for big companies to do that. But the idea of being able to bring new software to market quicker and more efficiently and at less cost is, is a, you know, provides that competitive advantage to be, to be more relevant to your customers. Yeah. So, so it's all about 
agility in the marketplace, consistency, and being able to produce a consistently um, quality product that's always improving rather than staying where you are. And so the same is going to be true of networking. And by the way, there's there's a common thought in the world that networking is kind of a, a cost center. It's not really strategic. It's kind of more tactical. It's kind of like you go solve an immediate problem with networking and then you're kind of done. And there's no, there's no real business value in networking. And this is also another thing that people push back against doing something like uh, NetDevOps is that, well, the network's kind of static and it's old and blah dee da dee da I don't know. My experience is the opposite. The, the culture of the networking team and the way the networking team builds the network has a huge impact on the business, the bottom line of the business in the long run. Um, because it becomes, it, it goes from a matter of, okay, let's, let's go push these requirements of the networking team to more of, Hey, you know, if I can envision a network that could do this, what could you do on the business side to take advantage of that? What could you do with the business if I gave you this capability? And so it's kind of, it becomes more of a business driver. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Joel, but that's, that's kind of my experience. And that goes back to one of the other DevOps concepts here is the idea of taking a systems view. You're not just... You know, so many organizations, they say, well, I'm on the networking team or I'm on the compute team, I'm on the storage team. But all of those pieces have to fit together and work together to deliver applications, right? And a network doesn't exist for itself. It exists to support a business. So you really need to think of it as what's, what's, what does this business need? What are these business requirements and how, how do those infrastructure components support that business. If there's a disconnect, it's it's not going to work very well to support the business and it's going to be difficult for that business to stay relevant. Well I think I think the infrastructure teams, but probably to a greater degree networking teams are a pretty interesting marker of a company's ability to modernize all aspects of their operation because it's one level of difficulty to get app developers to, to work in a continuous integration and in, in a DevOps way. It's a different level of difficulty to do this with physical infrastructure like routers and switches. Um, I, I just think that if you, if you have that, if you have a network team doing that, then you have probably cleared all those other lower hurdles. Um, and it's a, pr- a pretty good indicator, I think. Um, what, what do you think about that, Joel? If, if you're good at the hardest piece, you should be good at the pieces that are much easier, right? It all carries into that. So, but, you know, and, and I think about it is a lot of these, I mean, a lot of these concepts aren't new. We talked about the three ways. The first way, kind of the big tenet of that is, is network automation, automation infrastructure. Going back to where I said some of these things aren't new, just a little anecdotal discussion here. Um, Russ, when did EIGRP come out? 1993, around that time frame? Around that time frame, right. I mean, IGRP was around before that and, of course, was melting networks and having problems. And so EIGRP was a much more efficient. Of course, EIGRP was also supposed to take the multi-protocol one level higher and make it better. So I was, uh, before before I worked for Cisco, Worked at a company, uh, Pennsylvania Amp Incorporated. We had we were starting out networking, right? We were going with the blue boxes, 
we we had some of the AGS pluses, but basically the seven thousand, the four K, the twenty five hundreds, right? That that was really when Cisco started to take off, and we started to put in a network. It was OSPF, and there was another guy doing it, and we were doing the best that we could. But what did we know back then? Right, everything was on paper and CD. We didn't we didn't have but we couldn't uh, search for things. We couldn't learn. The learning experience wasn't as easy as what it was today. And uh, I decided that I thought we ought to migrate our network to EIGRP. So I had this, uh, and I came from a systems programming, uh, software development systems, uh, systems program or a mainframe. So we wrote, you know, we wrote code, we wrote things to, to operate the, the mainframe to do our backups, to do all kinds of things. So I decided that you know, I was gonna I was gonna take a rather novel approach. It was a pretty daring approach, I guess. But um, copy all the configurations from all the devices to a TFTP server. Wrote some Perl, and at the time, Perl was you know one of the few free open source languages that that you could script in. Parse the configurations, remove the OSPF statements, replace them with the equivalent EIGRP configuration, and then copy from the TFTP server to the startup, not the running, but the startup, configure these devices. And you also have, so that was done on a weekend. Sunday night, we were going to do this cutover. And I said, you know, we'll, we'll copy all the configs in using some very basic kind of a telnet, batch telnet uh, utility to send commands to the routers. And um, decided that we're going to, you know, you can set the time and do a, a scheduled reload on, on iOS boxes. And I was going to have them all reload at one time. And um, voila, the network will come back up with the IGRP. Well, Friday afternoon, I had, before we left for the weekend, or we, on Friday afternoon, just made some slight mistake in the configuration. And I tested it in the lab. And the box didn't come back up. It sort of bricked itself. So, you know, if you, you know, if, if you put a config and startup config, it's assumed that it's been parsed and it's a good configuration. But if you're, if you're manually putting it there off a TFTP server, it hasn't gone through the CLI and it hasn't been able to do that checking. So I thought about it like Saturday. And it's like, you know, I'm taking a pretty big risk here. If something's wrong with this config, I'm going to brick the whole entire network. So one of the principles in DevOps, small batch sizes, fail fast. So I scrambled around and said, you know, I don't need to reload every box at the same time in a network. I'm going to go through and figure out what boxes, what routers are one hop away from a management server, what are two, what are three, what are four, and so on, to find the bounds of the blast radius, so to speak. So I said, okay, I'll identify a couple of routers go through this process, and when they came back up successful, then we'll have some confidence that the rest of the network will come back up successful as well. And that's not knowing it at the time. That's one of the principles of DevOps, the first way. Small batch sizes, small changes, fail fast, limit work and process. So even though I didn't know anything about DevOps, I was using a DevOps concept at the time. You know, today we have this guideline, this blueprint to go by, the DevOps handbook of how to do these things based on people's experience, but we didn't do that then. So it was a successful upgrade, 
But I mitigated the risk by eliminating making a smaller blast radius and using this DevOps concept to limit the work and process, to limit, make sure that we were able to, to uh, you know, verify the configurations, verify we had neighbor relationships and so on. It didn't add much to the total cutover, you know, maybe a, a 30 minutes at most, but it great, greatly reduced the risk of having all of the devices that were scattered all over North America and other places go down all at one time. So, you know, we were doing automation back then, right? That was probably 96, 97. We were doing automation. It's just the tools weren't as good. And some of these concepts that really originated from the Toyota production system, not knowing any better, I applied them at that time. So, you know, it's a matter of, you need to try to think about doing things differently and how you can improve upon it, but kind of bound it with some of the things that we were taught, you know, through the the DevOps concepts that have developed over all of these years. Another thing that I think comes into this, so let's let's go back through the ways again so people remember what they are. The first way you said is flow of work, which is automation of infrastructure's code. And then your second way, which is just just doing small batches limit work in progress, like you were just talking about here. And then the second one is feedback. So talk about feedback a little bit, just so that we kind of... Right. So one of the things, so feedback, the second way is feedback. So if you think about it, some of the bullet points there, that is um, small feedback loops. So the idea of not doing an entire network in one fell swoop, but picking a selected number of devices that were less risky is a concept of getting feedback, right? Apply a change, get a feedback measure, make sure that that change, find and fix any problems. Well, in this case, there weren't any, but it gave you the opportunity to find and fix problems on a smaller scale before you applied that to a larger scale. Peer review of changes is another one there. And that's something that I didn't do. So I can't emphasize that enough. In this case, I pretty much you know, came up with the, the the migration scheme and implemented the migration scheme, but it is fantastic to have a peer review of whatever change that you're making. But it just I've just found that the the idea of you having to explain what you're going to do to someone else really helps to clarify in your mind and, and think about it in a little different manner. I, you know, I think that's something we don't do enough. But peer reviews, I think, are critically important. And, and that's actually kind of hard for some people because they just don't have the size of shop that allows them to have the kind of peer review that would make a lot make things a lot better. So are there any ideas for people who are in that position who, like, you know, might want to find some way to say, yeah, I mean, how do I handle this? How do I do that now? Well, you know... The whole idea of Slack channels and some of some other things are a good way to get that information, right? But but yeah, I agree with you. In a smaller shop, you know, you you really want to be able to talk to somebody that can relate to what you're doing. But it's it's another good way to learn too, right? The concept of uh, of paired programming, which I I think is probably hard for some people. But the idea of having somebody else or maybe a a, a mentor. I mean, it, it's always a good practice to have a mentor and to be a mentor. So even though maybe uh, you, it's not a, a peer in itself, I think just the act of explaining 
a process or explaining a cutover, explaining what you're doing to someone else helps clarify it in your own mind. Yeah, and I think and a, and a good a good mentor will be willing will be very willing to participate in that exercise. You know, if you're in a small shop, your mentor is probably not inside your organization, but uh, somebody who's a good mentor would say, "Yeah, let's let's take a half an hour. Let's talk about your change. I have no idea what your what your environment is, but you explaining it to me, you'll get the benefits." And um, you know, I just the act of explaining, like you were saying, I think is you know sixty percent or more of the benefit of code review anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even if they're not doing the same job that you are, or they're not necessarily in the same place, like, for instance, I remember the times that Donnie Savage or one of the other folks would come to me and ask me to code review things in the Edge Europe Bureau OSPF. I wasn't a full-time coder. I was in Escalation. I was in someplace else inside the company, but I knew the protocol well enough if they explained to me what the code was doing that it was still worth their time to, you know, just to talk to me about, talk me through what they were trying to do and to help them understand better, you know, how everything should work and to make sure everything was correct. So I think, I think that again, it, you don't have to look for somebody in this process of doing the review that is either inside your organization necessarily or is even in the same area that you're in, right? There's something to be said for just getting somebody who's an application developer to go over your code with you. They may not understand the network side, but they're going to understand the data structure you're using. They're going to use, they're going to understand all the other stuff that you're doing, dealing with and be able to help you with that stuff. And the other benefit to that is, you're broadening your awareness of other areas of the company, right? It's a way of looking at a systems approach. Now that person might be a storage engineer or automating storage and doesn't know networks, but they're going to know a little bit more about networking and what's important after that process than they did before. And, and yeah, and that helps spread the expertise and gets people talking to each other. And I think that's all really, really, really important. All right, so that's the second way. Let's talk about the third way, unless you want to continue in the second way. The third way, continual learning experimentation, and this is hard for a lot of people, but post-mortem reviews, after-action reports, whatever, however you want to call it, being able to, whether it's a conference, whether it's a network change, whether it's a disaster recovery site, uh, exercise or whatever, I think it's, it's critically important to have those post-mortem reviews, understand what worked, what didn't work, because that feeds into improving, right? If you just do a task or do a cutover, do a change or, or an upgrade, and you don't talk about what worked and what didn't work, you kind of lose some benefit, right? Being, being able to say, okay, so we this didn't go so well, we're going to do better next time, always try to do better next time. I think that's an important part there too. Um, continual learning, time for improvement. So I've I've been real fortunate in my career, where I've had the opportunity to have time to sit down and learn new things, to be able to to uh, learn new technologies, things that you're interested in. Not everybody has that luxury. Some people are a lot more tight on their time frames, but uh, one of the Tenants of the third way is you should have 20% of your time for 
innovation across the board, right? Back to what we said about falling behind due to atrophy. If you're not improving, you're falling behind due to atrophy. Well, innovation time is an important aspect and a culture and organizational structure that encourages that. I, I like the idea of using 20% and using innovation time for improvement because I think a lot of uh, infrastructure and network engineers, when you talk to them about 20% time, what sometimes their immediate reaction is, well, I don't work on a product. I don't, nobody's going to buy this network. Um, even if they're at a service provider, they probably aren't thinking that, um, you know, there's no one's going to walk into the Apple store and get this thing off the shelf that I, that I'm working on. I don't have a product. What do you mean? 20%, but to use that, uh, instead of creating some product that someone will buy to use it as improvement time. I think that's a really great way to frame that. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Well, every organization has broken processes, right? So if you can, anything that you can do to improve your process to be more efficient or improve, good example, what's one of the ways that you um, ensure the scalability of, let's say, we'll talk about EIGRP, right? It's summarization is one way that you can, I mean, at one time, you, you know, I, heard anecdotally that Cisco had like seven routes in its core because it was summarized. That, that is correct. Yeah, that's not that's not anecdotal. That's the truth. So the, and that's that's a net result of summarization, correct? Being able to route summarization. So and I went through that with a customer uh, when I was a consulting engineer at at uh, at Cisco. One one of the customers that I consulted with, you know, part of our process and they, they had the EIGRP in their network. And I said, well, let's, let's start doing some summarization because they had a, a good addressing scheme, but they were, you know, advertising their routes all over the network. I said, well, let's, let's do some summarization on these routes because you have a, a well thought out addressing scheme here and we can create better stability because we, we're not, you know, we're, we're summarizing these routes. So there's something that you can improve upon. It, it's going to work either way. But it's going to be better if you're summarizing because it's going to be more stable, and 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 that's an improvement that um, relative, you know, relatively low risk. But uh, it, it's an innovation. It's an innovation time. How do I, how do I do make my configurations better? Or, or even the opposite direction, looking at your looking at your summarization or aggregation and saying, why am I aggregating here? Is that really important in this particular case? Or why am I aggregating it all on my campuses? Would it actually improve my mean time to, to repair if I just got rid of aggregation in this part of the network and just didn't have it, right? And just thinking those things through and thinking about what that would do, not only there, but for security, right? We don't think about security as a place of continuous improvement, but it's really a huge problem in the modern network that we just don't really, it's not something we think about. Well, and that goes back to taking a, a systems approach, yeah. understanding the whole system, not just your piece of it. One of the, one of the things you listed here was organizational knowledge. I'm curious, what, what do you mean by that? Just understanding what the goal is. So, and I think the DevOps handbook or, or one of the books that I've read talks about the Apollo program. How in the Apollo program in less than 10 years, because Apollo was only really the last few years of that 10 year, that 10 year cycle. But how did 400 plus thousand people come together to be able 
to launch a man on the moon and bring him back safely. Organizational knowledge, they had to understand they had one main goal, right? Send a man to the moon, land him safely, and bring him home again. But all of those different pieces had to work together to be able to accomplish that goal. But each person on that project knew what the fundamental goal was. It was very, a very clear goal. It was a very fundamental goal. And they knew that their piece of it was to support that. So organization, uh, you know, for the network engineer to understand what's important to that particular organization helps make them better, better engineers, better decisions, because they know what is important. They know what the overall goal is. And a lot of companies or a lot of organizations, they, they maybe don't. So another thing I think that's that's where you can get into the innovation that we often, again, don't talk about a lot is the idea when you talk about continuous improvement stuff is the idea of how to stop thinking about the network and and change as something that's a one-off every time and how to, to, to stop thinking about, okay, I need to test this in the lab and then when I put it in the network... It's completely, I'm, I'm, I have no idea how it's going to work and I'm just going to guess and hope that it works well and that's going to be fine. But that's not the way I think about it. I tend to do um, things like canary testing and, and chaos engineering and stuff like that. And that all really fits in with this DevOps or net DevOps view of the world. Like you can't do those things without a net DevOps view of the world. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, we didn't we didn't really talk about it on the first way here, but ephemeral environments, dev test and production environments that used to be that used to be pretty hard, right? We had a you know back in, in the era that we were talking about. Fortunately, I had a small test lab with devices that were representative of all the the gear that we had in the network. Essentially, they were hot spares, making spares in a lab environment. Today, it's a lot easier, right? Today, you can bring up, uh, for example, uh, you know, Arista has a, a cloud ser- a, a cloud router that runs in a container. So if you want to test things, you can put Docker on a cloud instance and spin up some virtual routers in containers and test what you want and tear it down again. So... The technology has made it easier in some cases to, to uh, you know, to work on these different environments and test these different environments in a, in a cost-effective manner. Right, that's a, a problem with a lot of the network organizations that I see. For example, ACI Fabric. Well, network engineers they have a test ACI Fabric, but it's not test for the network; it's test for the developers. Right, so they're not still not allowed to touch it. So how how do how do they gain access uh, gain access to uh, a test environment? I think is is something that holds people back as well. And and the tools you're talking about is so widespread and so much easier to use than people think they are. I know I haven't had a chance to play with it, but I've been looking at Kathera and I want to spend some more time on that as a new lab environment type of thing. But you know, Arista has a virtual uh, virtual uh, router that you can put in. Juniper has at least three that I know of. Uh, Cisco has at least two or three that I know of. And then there's even open source versions like Bird and FR Routing. So even if you cannot get your hands on, and, and by the way, this is this stuff is actually really easy to get your hands on. Like most of this stuff is available in the Docker store. And you as an individual network engineer can just grab it. You don't need to like ask for permission or anything like that. But... 
Yeah, I mean, even if you can't get a commercial version, there are versions that are out there and that you can use. And so I think that's a really important point to make as well, is that this is not above your cray grade. This is not something that you cannot do, in effect. Yeah, it's the tools have the tools have changed. The, the concepts are very similar. The concepts have been around for a long time, but the tool sets that we have available to us today make us so much more efficient and so much uh, it's so much easier to obtain, easier to get to, lower cost. I mean, th- think about it. I said about Perl. We used Perl for many years. Y- there was a time when if you wanted a compiler, you pretty much had to work for a company that had a computer and you could use compilers on, right? COBOL, Fortran, Pascal, PL1. You know, today you can get COBOL compiler for free, runs in a container. You can get uh, Python and all kinds. So the resources that we have available to us today are make it so much it lowers the barrier to entry so much compared to what it was in the, in the past. And we need to take advantage of that. I would agree. All right. So that's the three ways. Is there other stuff back behind that, that that's important to talk about? Did we miss bits and pieces that are that you think are really important? You know, I, I think, you know, I think that, like I said, the, the big thing to think about is organizational structure and organizational change. It's it's not, I keep telling people, it's not the technology, it's the organization and people's willingness to experiment, be able to, to try something different, to constantly improve, to be able to think about how can how can this job be done better. You know, I think it's a mindset in many cases. And Fortunately, the books like the DevOps Handbook and the Toyota Production System, they give us a blueprint. We just have to implement it in, in, in many cases. And, and it's hard. Sometimes it's hard because it's hard. It's hard for people to change. And it's hard for organ, especially hard for organizations to change. So that, that to me is the, is the real takeaway there is, is how, how, can you, how can you improve and do things differently and ask, how can this job be done better? And yeah, I, I tend to see that as well. And I really think it's so super important for organizations. And you know, you as an average network engineer, if you're the person listening to this, you're the you're the person in charge of doing this. Like you think you need to ask permission, but don't. Like just don't. Just build it in the lab. Find some of these tools. Start figuring out how to do this. Start figuring out how you would implement. Use that. You know, go to your manager and say, I want my 20% of my time to do innovation and use that at first to build the tools and to do stuff to make yourself smarter on this and get it out and running. I mean, there's people like Joel who can help with that kind of stuff if you really need the help doing it. Um, And I think it's, uh, you know, get on a Slack that's in that area or something like that and start asking questions and and start building this stuff. That's, That's kind of my bottom line is that we just don't do this enough. We just like let it sit. And I, I think the idea too, of being able to, to, to document what you've done and share it with other people is an important aspect to, we talked about peer reviews, but if you build something, write it down and tell your, tell the other people in your organization what you've done or show it to them because um, they're going to learn from you and you're going to learn from them. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, you know, I don't know. I, I have always been a big believer in, um, paying attention to other people, making relationships, trying to get that stuff to work. And, and if you do this type of stuff, you're going to help 
build relationships a lot better and and reach out to other people and get stuff done. And I know I've probably told the story a thousand times, but when I was at Cisco, I had a candy jar on my desk. And I did it because people would walk by and grab candy out of the candy jar. And I would say, hey, who are you? Where do you work? Right? And pretty much everybody in the TAC at the time would at some point or another come by my desk and and grab candy. And so then... Like I would get a call on Novell Netware or something like that. And I'd be like, oh, I know somebody over on that team. They came and got candy last week. And I would just, you know, grab, walk over to their desk and say, I got this case and it's a mixture of IP and IPX. And I really need somebody to really help me sort this out. And, you know, it, it was, it was a great way to just build relationships and just get people to, to, to know who I was and just be more, um, more involved, I guess, is is the thing, and I think you got to do that here. That's that's my point. You got to do that here. You can't do this on your own. You got to get out there and meet people and and get stuff to go in. So awesome. All right, Joel. Well, let's start with Tom. Tom, where can people get in touch with you if they want to? I'm on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn. If you search for Tom Ammon, you'll find me. Okay, that's it, huh? That's it. No blog. <laughs> <laughs> I keep trying, folks, and it just it's just not going anywhere. <laughs> and Joel, where can people get in touch with you if they want to? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm uh, Programmable Networks on LinkedIn. You can probably do a web search and find some things I've done in the past, but you'll also find me on LinkedIn, and that's a good way to get in touch. Do you write anywhere regularly? I thought that you were writing in different places, but I can't remember now. Uh, sometimes I contribute to some articles and do some things online, but uh, yeah, if you Google, you'll find it. All right. Awesome. That's great. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me here at the hedge. I'm a little bit disorganized today, but that's okay. But anyway, um, you can always find me here at the hedge and on rule11.tech, LinkedIn. I don't know. I'm on routing geek on, on Twitter, though I never log in. So whatever. And I'm on a ton of slacks. And so if you want to be on a Slack, I'm on, get in touch with me. And uh, Tom and I Tom and I will hook you up with some place where you can talk to us if you want to, because there's lots of places that we're on Slack. So thanks, Joel, for coming on. Uh, awesome show, awesome topic, and um, really important for folks to get, a, get, to get their arms around and understand. Um, so very good. And we'll try to put some of those books in the show note if we can figure that out, how to do that. Uh, thanks, Joel. And... Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.